0: On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I talk about our lives, talk about uh, wonderful personal tilting moments, but then we move into some interesting discussions on incentives in sports, robo-umpiring, and the future of humans in the world of sports. And we have a great interview with Evan Wash, an executive at the NBA, who's worked on sort of a lot of the innovations which then the NBA structure. And then we finish with a wonderful shout out to my painter. So with that, let's start
1: the process. Bet bet I bet, I bet the process. Bet 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 the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place, find a town with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey body rankings, crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic.
0: Welcome to, to another episode down. of the Bet the Process podcast where Rufus is in Maine. And we've already had some beginnings of some deep philosophical conversations on what ultimately motivates Rufus. So what ultimately motivates you on this Thursday morning, Rufus? Or I guess it's not, is it still
2: morning? It's not morning for you anymore. It's noon. It's afternoon. It's morning somewhere. That's a really good question of what motivates me. It's kind of, kind of not a, is it not a soup question? What's a soup
0: question? It's from a movie called Finding Forrester, where Sean Connery. Uh, I think I've told you the story before. He basically, this this kid, sort of an inner city kid that's really good at basketball and really smart. It's a good movie, I think. I mean, w- but but the, a, the point is, they're sitting eating soup, and he says something like, "That's not a soup question," basically because uh, it's not like a, a casual question. Is the
2: is the illusion? So, um, anyways, not a soup question. But uh, what does motivate you right now, Rufus? By the way, I have seen the movie. It was a long, long time ago.
3: But what motivates me right now, is, it, not a lot, if I'm being completely honest. Um, just, I mean, not not work as much, certainly. I think I think golf handicapping still motivates me probably more than anything else. And, and try-
0: golf handicapping and your golf handicap, yeah, golf modeling. modeling,
3: golf modeling. No, oh,
0: but your handicap.
3: Your handicap your own golf game so, motivates yeah, you Tom's up a stroke in the Peabody Cup, which is so and, and well we have we have a trip to Cabot july 23rd to 27th, so I'm excited to hopefully get some Peabody points then or fall way behind so that should be fun, although it's a really long way to get there It's a long drive and i don't want I don't want to drive eight hours in his car with him really to be honest but um, but I don't, what I kind fly? of car does Tom drive a Honda Accord? Is it like a
0: old car or something? You could say that. Yes. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a great idea for you to break down in the middle of Canada. Well, I mean, what if the cartel, what if the cartel gets you? The Canadian cartel. <laughs> yeah. There's, I'm sure there's a Canadian cartel of some sort, right? I don't know. Hopefully there's golf courses close to where we break down if we do. Maybe they force you to eat poutine or something like that.
3: Oh, no. That'd are you are you pro-poutine or anti-poutine? Well, I don't do the dairy thing, so I would say anti because it's covered in cheese curds.
0: I I don't... And maybe I just haven't had good poutine, and this is going to be a controversial take, but I've just never... like I like my fries to be crispy at some level, so the minute you put stuff on them that makes them not crispy... It kind of loses it for me, but I know there's like some texture pieces where it's like crispy versus not crispy. I don't know.
3: You know, Tom agrees with you on the crispiness of the fries, and I'm at the other end of the spectrum. I kind of I kind of like them soggier, softer.
0: Doesn't surprise me about you. You seem like
3: you a know, soggy like steak fries. Kind of guy. Steak fries are really good.
0: They can be crisp so, on the outside, but I want them to be soft on the inside. So I agree with you on steak fries, like a big, thick steak fry. I am a fan of, I I mean, where are you? I had this whole conversation when I did the Dave Chang podcast um, because we did a sort of final four or we did a uh, 64 like bar foods kind of thing. What's your overall ranking of like fried potato items? Like what is the top fried potato item for you? Is it a shoestring fry? Is it a Waffle fry. Is it a tater tot? Is it a
2: you know a uh, twice-baked potato wedge? Like what 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 is it? I would say steak fries are up there. Waffle fries can be too.
3: I mean, I think I, I like having a lot of the surface area of the fry, but I think it all depends on how the fry is done too. Like I've had really, really good tater tots, and I've had awful tater tots. Well, not awful, but you know, there's certainly really fries ever had an
0: awful tater tot and like an all like
2: they I've had awful. I've had awful Like, had awful like yeah, the kind, that... the
3: kind that I don't like are the ones that are like really crisp and greasy, but also have like no salt, so- like substance inside. Have you ever had ones like that that are just kind of like? uh, Those seem just like poorly cooked fries. No, it's a certain type of fry. I don't know how to describe it exactly. More than that, it feels like it's very fried, but but you get nothing out of it. Well, do you like McDonald's fries? They're I haven't had them in a while, but yeah, they're good.
0: I mean, have again, you had In-N-Out? Most fries have are you good. Had In-N-Out burgers. Have you had In-N-Out burgers fries?
3: I haven't been to In-N-Out in many years. I cannot remember the fries there.
0: They're not. That's because they're very unmemorable. I mean, they're that's not, any- like they're definitely not just, and they don't. In-N-Out, I think, is the only fry place that doesn't fry their fries twice like they just fry them and so they're not yeah i mean the the the, all the fries that i think that people eat are all like twice fried or something like that do you
3: like chick-fil-a fries
0: the waffle fries yeah yeah i do actually which is is again like a controversial take i i like them with the the chick-fil-a that sauce that they have and um yeah i actually the chick-fil-a actual chicken I'm like man on, but like the the chicken sandwich I'm man on, but I, I like the waffle fries. I I've tried to make Chick Fil A happen a lot, just like making Fetch happen, but like it's I haven't gotten to a point where it's really like I was at the Denver airport the other day, and I probably waited, you know, 20 minutes in line for Chick Fil A just because you know it was an opportunity, and the line was so long it's like kind of ridiculous that I waited in it. But fascinating story, Jeff. Really fascinating, great story about Chick Fil A and your eating habits. So Jeff, I'll, I'll tell you what ranks at the bottom of my fry list, and that's sweet potato fries. You know they're healthier, and that's one of the reasons I think people think about them because they absorb fewer grease. And so fewer you greases. know that fewer greases, and so. Uh, I, I, I polarizing sweet potato fries. Some people like them. I'm not. A, I won't. I won't actively choose sweet potato fries. Although I've had sweet potato tater tots. Have you had those? Those are actually Mm-mm. pretty. They're kind of an interesting, interesting combination. But I just, I just think regular potatoes
3: are better than sweet potatoes, and so as a result, regular fries are better than sweet potato fries. It's
2: a fair point. Don't mess um, with
0: perfection. How was the um, rocket mortgage?
3: Tournament well, I, I know for you? how it was for you because you bet the zero point three percent Ricky Fowler edge, which, as you said. <laughs> after he wins it's 100% edge 100% edge.
0: actually
3: no 100% actually edge. no no it's not 100% edge actually it's more than that <laughs> i know
0: it's infinite edge yeah it's not infinite that was that, that was it's like a joke he... that we were making last week and like i don't know if you saw but people like posted on twitter about that they're like cuz they were just like it was kind of, it was kind of a funny and and i again that's when i was like yeah there's some really bad math happening on this podcast so yeah did i do bad math No, it was me doing bad math. You never do bad math. You only do math. You only do the good maths. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't been been as active on Twitter.
2: When I and I
0: don't, I don't. um, I know this is a terrible way to think about this, but like when you're when you give an opportunity, when I get an opportunity in one of your futures, especially for a favorite to have what's close to you know, a positive EV bet or even, even a positive EV bet. And I know I can get a little sweat out of it. I I'm in.
3: I'm guessing it's worth it for the sweat. You'll take the break even bet and knowing that there's a good chance. This guy actually has a chance on the weekend.
0: That's what, that's what it is, right? Like I mean, having it, a long shot with positive EV is not nearly as um, positive sweat EV as having a favorite. Fun. Like if you, if you were like, well, it's Oh, the Rom- John Rom thing
2: well we, yeah imagine Rom we every
0: week right because you just assume I have value on him I I haven't done that in a long time <laughs> I'm off the ROM train uh, I actually haven't really been betting golf at all except for this week for whatever reason I felt like I I did two bets I I did Fowler and Gordon Sargent nice and I got to found Gordon Sargent at 66 to one. so I was like oh that's good right I f- so I, found I found him
3: someone... on the bottom of the leaderboard ever ha- after having missed the cut
0: Right. But my point is, at 66-1, to one, you said he would, you priced him at like 48 or something like that, right?
3: Yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah. And then I found Fowler at 14-1. to one. So I was like, let's do this. And so-,
3: so I did not have any Fowler outright. I did have Fowler in matchups against Tony Fee now and Colin Morikawa. And it's rare that you have a tournament matchup that comes down to a playoff, isn't it? Like, literally, that's the only way that happens to both these guys. Yeah, like, it's happened before. I'm trying to remember which matchup. But what was interesting is the fact that if, let's say, Hadwin had won, let's say Morikawa got knocked out in the first playoff hole, and then it was Fowler against Hadwin, and Hadwin wins, my tournament matchup actually pushes. Right? Because oh wow, they still tie for second. Yeah. Or even though, even though Fowler was closer to winning, Did they, the they didn't,
0: situation. they don't even, they don't even put out in that situation, right? As soon as Fowler wins, it's over. Yes. Yeah. So what would it be interesting, imagine if, if, if it had, won. Yeah. But the thing or is,
3: imagine it's, like, okay, it's going to be first and then two people tied for second. That's how it's going to work. And so, uh, those yeah, guys I know, are but gonna imagine finish, they're going to make the same if, prize money.
0: Imagine if on that playoff, like, someone kind of blew up on a hole and was already lying four, when the other guy was like already in or something like that, you know, like, imagine a guy, imagine a guy had like, what was a tap in car. Ricky makes this thing and the other guys just inside of Ricky, but is lying four. Well, it's right?
3: over. I don't understand what I'm imagining.
0: So, in this scenario, right, where like let's say it's you had Colin versus Hadwin in a matchup, which obviously there wasn't wasn't available. Let's say Colin puts first and hits it to an inch, and then so it, he taps in for par. Let's say that Hadwin is lying four just inside of where Ricky is, right? And Ricky puts makes his birdie, then Hadwin technically would 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 have gotten a five, and if you were going to say like he would not have, they would not have had he would not have had an opportunity to do tie Colin on that. But it doesn't he, even he, matter. Anyways. That's the whole. I know. The whole, I'm just right. saying. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying it would kind of it be a little tilting,
3: wouldn't it? It could yeah, be. You know, one guy could have shot a seven on the hole, as long as as long as the the guy not involved in the matchup wins, then the the other guys tie for second, and even if one of them got a par and the other guy got a
2: Quintuple bogey, whatever. Did you have any tilting moments of the week? Thinking, I don't know. I feel like we had some bad, um, variants on right, right around the like 18th
3: hole on round two for matchups. That was, yeah, I can pull up and see what these matchups were that kind of tilted me a little bit. We had, um, yeah, we lost like champ against Higo. Champ. Oh, Champ sucked. He was like, but, oh, we had to, like the, the course is playing really easy and we basically had matchups on two guys that just had to um, I, that were that basically two two of the only guys that were over par on
2: round two. And I think that was Cam Champ and somebody else. Oh, Harry Hall. We lost him against Bataya
3: Batia. But it was, I mean, we, it, it was a, uh, I think we lost 30,000 on the week. So it was a, a losing week, but not a particularly bad week. Like we just lost a few percent.
0: It's not bad. No. You can come back from that. Yeah. Did
2: we, you have we anything did, interesting? We did well with and... Liv.
0: We, 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 we hit an outright on Team Torque. <laughs> at plus
3: 615. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff is like
0: laughing hard at this. Did you um? Did you what? Do, who did you have going? Did you do any of the? It would be. Did you do, you do any women's stuff? No. I was like kind of tempted to bet on Rosang just because like I feel like, and there's no way. I, and then the problem is that like I think when I went to go look at it, it was all the way down at eight to one. It's like why would you bet on Rosang at eight to one? That's that. There's no way I, there's value on that.
3: I honestly don't follow it, so I couldn't tell you anything.
0: I don't know who Rosang did. is like the tigerish woods of golf of women's golf right now and they're playing the women's u.s open at pebble so i'll probably actually try to watch a little bit just like i mean it's it's interesting because to support women's golf the the you know a lot of these organizations are are really encouraging these places to host women's events to get more of the men's events which is great and so um yeah it'd be it's i'm i mean these women are incredible at golf. No, they're very, they're awesome. very they're good. Like I've, so I've good. seen, yeah. So, but as as is the like, men,
3: but their their skill level is incredible.
0: Yeah, Roseang is like she, she's she's one like if you look if you look at her like what she's done as an amateur, it's pretty insane. And her record when she was in college was pretty insane. It's like you know she's and, and it's they, they've taught a lot about the way that she was brought up to golf versus Michelle Wee where Michelle, we was like, you know, 13 competing against men trying to make men's cuts. Whereas, you know, Rose Zhang learned to, to compete and, and win at the level that she needed, to, you know, like the right level for her to be at. And it's, it's sort of similar to what, what Tiger was, I think, where he was, you know, kind of winning amateurs, then winning college, and then, you know, was ready for the, for the, for the pros. So it, uh, let's keep an eye on Rose. Let's keep an eye on Rose. She's the official pick of the bet, the process podcast for um, we, we sponsored her. I don't know if you, you'll have to look really closely at her uh, ball markings, but there's um, there's seven dots on it. And one of them is highlighted.
3: One of them is representative of each listener. Oh, here,
0: I'll give you my, my tilting moment of the week. Okay. Here's my tilting moment of the week. I was playing Olympic club golf, I was with my buddy, Chris Murphy, and um, we were paired with a father-son group, or father-son twosome, and on the first hole, Chris says to me, breakfast ball, and I'm like, sure, and so I hit my drive. I, like, kind of lose my drive right um, into, like, the fairway next, and it's a bet-the-process ball that Corey Jazz made for me. It's a tailor-made bet-the-process ball, but, you know, it's, like, one of those situations where – you're going to find your ball because it's in a fairway. And I went and hit a second. I hit a second. It was a fine drive. And so we went and I walked over to get my ball because it's about the process ball and I don't want to lose it. And my buddy, Chris picks up a tailor made and throws it to me. And he goes, you were playing tailor made. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, is is it tour? Was it a distant? And I'm like, no, this isn't this because I'm like, is there a blue logo on it? And he's like, no, there, this isn't it. So I'm like, okay, that's weird. And then I keep looking around because I only have a certain amount of these but the process balls, which I'm, you know, cherish. And I'm like, I'm looking around, looking, I mean, around, you don't, you don't
3: hit the You don't use them on par threes over
0: water, probably, right? Uh, I do. I don't, yeah. I, I don't lose a lot of balls now. You know, in my five rounds at Bandon, Rufus, what's your over under on the amount of balls I lost on my okay, five rounds? At I've never
3: been to Bandon. I don't know how many actually, I mean, hazards there are. There's like a lot of fescue and stuff, right? But yeah i there's mean just what you're over under right. on five,
0: five rounds of golf like you don't need to know every detail like, yeah you how do i mean do there's certain
3: courses where it's impossible sure.
0: to lose balls i, w- I would say it's I'm not guess- impossible to lose balls there's definitely stuff there but it's not it's not like you know desert golf where you'll lose them in the it's in not like florida the, golf you don't want to get them because it's rattlesnakes and there's not tons of tree i mean the trails course there's trees and But it's you know, it's I think they probably make sure don't want you to lose a lot of balls, don't want you to spend a lot of time looking, so they create their course in a way that you don't lose a lot of balls. Right. It's not like Florida with a bunch of water hazards. What's your over-under? Just pricing over-under.
3: In five rounds? Yeah. Based on what you're saying, I'm gonna go with six and a
2: half. I lost two balls.
3: That's impressive.
0: Yeah. So anyway, so I so we go and whatever. I go to grab the ball. Chris is like, eh. And so I don't think anything of it and I can't find my ball in the fairway, which is annoying. And so I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. It's not, not worth spending all the time. I'll move on, move on to Cincinnati. And so maybe like three holes later, I looked down and the dude who it, we're playing with has a bet the process golf ball that he just hits. And I was like, Now, what I neglected to say is the guy that we're playing with also lost the ball right and went to pick it up and did a, you know, breakfast ball kind of thing. So I like turned to him and I said, I think think you might have picked up my ball on, on one. And he was like, oh yeah, no, it's tailor-made blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah. So he basically, you know, picked up the ball, didn't really look at it, started playing it and, you know, eventually gave me my bet to process ball back, but you know, and I I made through the round playing it. So it was good. So what's the tilting moment? You got your ball back. I guess that's true. There was no, the tilting moment was not being able to find my ball in the fairway, which was annoying. It's like, it's like an annoying way to start around a golf where you hit a breakfast ball that, you know, like the first one clearly is not a lost ball and you just want to go pick it up and move on. And I didn't that day. I actually like, because when I got to Bandon, I like emptied my bag for the, for the, um, for the um caddies and i literally took like 35 balls out of my bag <laughs> and i was like man my bag is so much lighter now why did i have so many of these balls but so i don't have that many balls in my bag and so i was like a teeny bit concerned like oh if i actually lose a lot of balls but i i don't i don't lose a lot of balls these days i, I don't think i lost a single ball that that round either so it's a much different way than i used to be where i feel like i'll used to lose like six balls on a on a whole on a on a round i'm, I'm um, now I'm losing
3: anyway. lots of balls so and I'm losing fewer.
0: Uh we're gonna have on um Evan Wash today. Evan Wash is a good friend and uh was one of the sort of like forefathers of the Sloan Analytics Conference and now is executive vice president at the MBA. And um, we'll obviously leave it to him to to tell a lot of stuff, but was curious, Rufus, if there are things that you're interested in? Because I think one of the things that he does is figure out a lot of the incentives around how to make the regular season more interesting, how to make the all-star game more interesting. I know you don't follow really the NBA at all, but in terms of like understanding, you know, are there any things that you are looking forward to talking about? Or are there questions that you're interested in with regards to this? Well, why are the playoffs
3: so long? I mean, that that's what makes the regular season less interesting.
2: Okay. It's. Well, m- I mean, the answer that. is money.
3: The answer is money, of course. The answer is of always course. money in sports, right? Yes.
0: yes, of course. Well, we can ask them.
2: Okay. So we'll talk to him. I mean,
3: the NBA, NBA, and, and I think NHL have the longest postseasons. But the thing is, the NBA, unlike the NHL, the better team wins a lot more often. And so, I think we've talked about this before. You don't need as many games to sort of get to have the better team win. And so as a result of having all these best of seven series, you, you you have a lot of teams that really don't have much of a chance, but also the best team almost always will win or more than any other sport.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I do think the playoffs are too, I mean, I think the NBA is going through a very, going to go through a very interesting evolution, um, right now with, free agency happening the summer league happening in vegas um they've created been able to create a ton of content and like you know ultimately i think evan is at the center of a lot of the analytic pieces around the nba i think he does a lot of the analytics around like rating refs and things like that it'd be interesting to hear his take it actually would be interesting to hear his take a little bit on what baseball did and from a perspective of like did he think that that would work how would he have done things differently how does he think it's doing because i think like watching baseball right now and like i think so much better baseball this, so much better i know but this this With the, the robo umping thing that's gonna that's robo, i know but this whole like watching the k-zone now and how every game has the k-zone art on it and like you can see how badly ra- like umps miss calls That is particularly tilting, I have to say. Like, you know, like when you see a a ball that's clearly, you know, like whatever, six to eight inches below, you know, and the catcher catches it like right below the ground and they call it a strike. You're just like, have you seen that clip on Twitter of the guy like tapping his head, the hitter tapping his head and asking for a challenge? It's it's at like the minor league levels or some other level where they're doing like they must be playing with robo. Yeah,
3: I think you get like two challenges or something like that per app? No. I I don't know. I don't know how many you get, but but there are there are, you can get an overrule like a, a manager's challenge on a ball
2: strike call. That just seems dumb. Like either go to uh, robo lumping for balls and strikes or or don't. Like like why
0: do you need a hum- like the, why do you need a human involved there if the there's human humans involved there- in
3: areas where you don't need them in sports in general
2: like like where like you mean okay. i mean yes the chains is, but give me
3: in the field. nfl the chains think about the chains they moved the chains and like
2: do you really need the chain game coming out to measure something which is such an inexact science i don't know i mean that's it's it's an interesting question to, to think about this whole concept of where humans are involved with sports and do we need them to be involved we like We like outrage. Yeah, we would have nothing
3: to argue about if we didn't have if if we if all calls were perfect.
2: So there has to be some physical demarcation on the field of what the first down is, right? Yeah. So you could say, okay, this is where we're starting this yard line. Like, I mean, the technology is there like the i don't know if the
3: technology is there for them to actually be able to spot like know where the ball is when the knee goes down exactly but i think we're probably pretty close on that but and also yeah so
0: no but do you under, what I, do you understand what i'm saying like i i the difference right is that there's not a physical deep like there's there's literally no need for that ump to make judgment in a ball strike right they could literally just get signaled as soon as the ball crosses the plate whether it's a ball or strike And then they could just be the conduit for whether it's a ball or strike. And so if we're allowing people to challenge certain balls and strikes, like what are we even doing here? Why wouldn't we just have them like be able to just like, why do we want to introduce judgment into a situation where we believe technology is already better than judgment?
3: Because of the history of baseball. But, you know, Aaron Boone getting thrown out of like every other game, arguing balls and strikes Things. I mean, there's.
0: But we they're not allowed. They're not allowed to argue balls and strikes. No, that's, no, even that's why point, they get thrown right? out
3: of the game for it. Right? Right,
0: but like, what's the what's the what's the I mean. What are, what I, I are do think even,
3: that the relationship between players and managers and umpires in baseball is kind of different than it is between play, players and coaches uh, and officials in other sports. I think there's more of a sort of storied history of like arguing and like you're allowed to come out and argue stuff. Um,
2: It's, you know, game gets paused while people argue. It's like fighting in the NHL. Uh, And I know they're trying to, agree. there's not as much fighting as there used to be, but
3: it, you know, I, I think it is part of the history of baseball and, I do think eventually we will have those robo arms, but I think it's taking time. Just like it took time for leaks to embrace gambling, and it's taken time for took time for instant replay reviews to happen. It, I mean,
0: took time for the pitch clock. Like, I mean, the pitch clock did not take that much time. No, they introduced it's... it in the, this year, and everyone's sort of accepted that. That's been it's the great. Most incredible... I think it's fantastic. I know, and it's 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 incredible to me how quickly like it's just become. Part of the game, right? Like you would you would have thought before the season, if someone had told you that this was gonna happen, you'd be like, Oh my god, that's not gonna work. (laughs) How's that gonna work? Like, how is that gonna be
2: but I'll I'll tell you,
0: you you make the incentives and and golf needs to figure out a way to do this with slow
3: play, but but the incentives are actually um on field, right? When you find players for things, you know, nobody really cares, they're making enough money. It's not if it, if they think it, if a player thinks it helps their performance to go slower, they're going to go slower and accept the fines. Yeah. But what, um, but, but what, you have something you, and you have, it's not like in golf with slow play, there's no clock there. There's, you know, you have to keep up with the group in front of you. They time how long it takes to hit a shot and stuff like that, but it's all in the background. Nobody sees it. And so there's judgment of a person saying, should we enforce this or not? Like, do we want to like, what do we do versus when there's a clock in front of you, when there's a clock in front of you, everybody sees it. And it, the rule enforces itself in essence. I mean, if an umpire misses it, like people will be like, what the fuck? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, the question is what do you do for, for golf to make play faster? Um, The funny thing is golfers say the same thing that baseball players said before. Um, And yet the baseball players for the most part like this change, but what that thing was, is that like, Oh, we don't think that the game like, you know, need to be slower. Like it's, I mean, I think actually a lot of golfers think that the pace of play does need to increase, but, but overall, I mean, they're the guys playing slow.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, broadly speaking, I don't know if Tom told you I'm doing this like project in golf right now and I interviewed him for it and I've been interviewing golfers a little bit and, you know, pace of play is clearly something that's on almost every golfer's mind. Like nobody wants a slow round, right? I'd rather play a fast round at a
3: shittier course than a slow round at a nicer course.
0: Yeah, and so pace of play is it's kind of a fascinating thing. Like I've talked to golf courses. Like I talked to a guy yesterday who used to own a bunch of, or still does own a bunch of golf courses. He owns like 30. And he was saying like, he used to just send his marshals out with like re, really good pro V ones and just basically drive driving around and like the minute they see someone like looking for a lost ball, just, Hey, just drop it here and give them a new brand new pro V one. And like, that was one of the ways that he like got pace of play to, to speed up right so yeah i mean i think i i personally think the way best way and you and i have had this conversation i think the best way to increase base of play is to give each other putts and you don't like that but like i just i don't need like everyone in my in my threesome grinding or foursome grinding over two footers so but most
3: people aren't grinding over two footers most two footers are given but i mean i don't think you should give five footers
0: no, I'm not talking about 5 foot. I don't I don't think I'm that is about, the thing that cha- I, I don't think that's the thing that drives the base of play. I, I disagree with you. Most of the time that's spent like on holes is spent putting. And if you if you make people put I I actually ready do golf. think like
3: Sure, I think ready golf like, helps. Like read your putt bef- while while somebody
0: else is reading their putt. Be ready. Like
2: That's yeah. well Rufus,
0: we've played together and I don't think that you're, it's funny cause I don't think you're the fastest golfer I've ever met. <laughs> cause you, one cause you're asking too many questions about the, about the, the game and the course and the. Did, well, it's cause you're years always years. playing some gambling game that I never understand. No, I'm I just, not. I, I mean, we're always playing very simple gambling games and you just, yeah, you just have no math. Your, your brother confirmed for me that, that you have a, have a per- personality on the golf course. <laughs> that is like he's like every time i ask him a question he's like i'm like rufus in this way but not as bad as rufus that's what he would say (laughs) it's endearing rufus like shane and i love it when we play with you we kind of look at each other every time you do it and we're just like oh come on
2: Rufus." (laughs) anyways okay uh let's talk to evan and then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side We now welcome into the Bet the Process podcast probably
0: the highest ranked NBA executive we've ever had on here because basically it's just Adam and then you, Evan, right? Your that EVP is, of that is all not the accurate, important but stuff. You
4: probably haven't had anyone else, so we'll call it that.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to think if we've had an NBA executive. Well, okay, so let's start off. What is your title and what do you do at the
2: NBA?
4: So I am the head of basketball strategy and analytics. Uh, And I oversee a group that is tasked with optimizing the NBA game for our fans. So that includes everything from the way we schedule the games and structure our competition to the rules, to technology, innovation, officiating performance, basically anything that the fan sees uh, as part of the competition, we have a hand in trying to shape uh, in a way that will be pleasing to that fan.
0: How did you get into this role what was your background before you you got here
4: yeah so I started my career in uh, strategy consulting actually and went to business school up at MIT trying to transition into sports and was fortunate enough to arrive at MIT around the same time the sports analytics conference was really taking off uh, and so that was my entree into the the NBA world and my first role at the NBA now 12 years ago was actually on the business strategy team here and, and I was hired right before the 2011 lockout uh, got underway to work on the league's revenue sharing plan, which was hand in hand with collective bargaining at the time to figure out uh, after allocating player share, how the the 30 team owners would you know divide the, the remaining uh, revenues and profits. That was a fascinating start to the NBA. And I spent about three years doing more business focused strategy before transitioning into a role that Tried to apply some of those same strategic and analytical principles to the game on the court as the the core product of the NBA. So uh, now been in in that role for coming on nine years here.
0: To what extent does analytics? It sounds like it's it plays a role in sort of everything you do, but like, how what what extent does it play a role in your day to day?
4: Huge. I, ultimately, every decision we make, we try to be grounded in in some type of. Um, some type of data uh, and obviously that that sometimes is more qualitative than quantitative data but we want to we want to be fact based in everything we do so i have a team of um many data scientists strategists technologists some um, some folks who are game reviewers with experts on the basketball side to understand the way the game is being played and ultimately when we're looking at at anything that we want to do i think there's there's three key questions that we that we have to uh consider one is what's the issue or is there an issue that we're trying to address? Um, Two is, are there potential changes, solutions, innovations that would actually address the thing that we think needs addressing? And then three is, are we going to be able to get our stakeholders aligned behind that solution and actually implement it? Because the nature of a role like this is a lot of what we consider ends up on the cutting room floor. That's okay. Uh, But at the end of the day, if you want to actually impact the game and make changes you, you, you sometimes have to have some wins you know under your belt and so trying to have that that dose of realism uh, in the process is important but you can see how data obviously is going to guide all three parts of that right so in the first one judging whether something needs addressing is in large part based on data right what what trends are we seeing in the game what is fan data telling us what is viewership data telling us what is social media engagement telling us about a particular issue you know, then of course you're doing projection work. Say if we were to change X, would we predict that Y would happen? Um, and then even in the the third stage, there in terms of uh, how we ultimately lobby and and try to effectuate these changes, um, being able to sell that into stakeholders and and explain why some of these things are ultimately better for the ecosystem. And, and there's a lot of, you know, not just data science but also you know financial modeling and, and forecasting that goes into some of that as well.
3: So is when you say better for the ecosystem. And, and selling the stakeholders on this, is that, I guess, is that final outcome that you're trying to optimize long-term revenue growth for the NBA?
4: Um, that is one of them. I, I would say my goal as the person who is focused on the product, it, my goal is the long-term health, uh, excitement, and enjoyment of NBA basketball it is then the responsibility of many other groups here to go sell that into the marketplace. But our view, just like any other product, you know, consumer product companies, you want the best possible product because then there's less work to do to actually sell that to people. So I focus a lot on on product quality and product health. That is harder to measure, right? We've had things like a basketball quality score we've done over time that by definition is subjective because we decide what metrics go into that score. Um, But we can look at the impact of some of these things. We have a few more direct measures than revenue. So for example, viewership is, is a good one. You know, we're obviously locked into long-term national media deals. So if we do something that significantly improves viewership, that's probably a good sign that fans are enjoying the product more. It's not going to mean revenue to your point until some future year when we can renegotiate, you know, those deals. Um, so that is that is one. But I also think as, as a sports league, we are different than some other products in in that there is a bit of Traditionalism here, and so it's not just change for change sake. We do have to be pretty careful uh, about what we change and um, make sure that we're not, you know, upsetting the history or tradition of the league in a way that's counter to our goals. Right? We have to avoid gimmicky changes. We have to avoid things that threaten the integrity of the competition. Um, and so, things that may be solely revenue-focused, we still might not do uh, for other reasons. So it's some mixture of you know, the integrity and tradition with the product quality, with the the long-term economic output. It's,
3: it's interesting you say that because it feels, I mean, to me, I'm not a big, I'm not a, I'm not a big NBA follower, Um, but I know we're not golf that it's true, but there is an inverse relationship between the number of games and the quality of the games. Probably. Right. I mean, as we have the load management and all that stuff. So how does that sort of factor into your decision-making there in terms of the fact that the regular season is, you know, very long, but the postseason is very long also, which basically means as we've seen this year, like if you get in, you have a chance.
4: Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. And I would say this is probably regular season game count is probably the issue I have spent the most amount of time on uh, of, of any single issue over the past decade. And we've netted out where we are, which is to continue to have 82 games for a number of reasons um, that may not be intuitive, you know, to a, to a fan or, or to a, you know, an outside observer, but at the core, right, you're correct. That obviously if, if you have fewer games, each of those games holds more competitive meaning. Um, theoretically, if you play them over the same, uh, calendar window, that means there's going to be more days off. And so theoretically you have more rested players. Theoretically you would have, um, uh, fewer injuries, th- things like that. The, the counter though, is you have to question what our product is, right? And so if we were solely focused on competitive meaning and injury avoidance and maximizing fan engagement for the games we do have, then you wouldn't play very many games at all, right? But we actually find that the volume that we have is an asset to us, that fans want to see LeBron and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant as many times as possible in the season. And so when someone says, well, you should just cut back to 58 games because the guys are missing, you know, star players are missing 20 games on average. One response is, sure, if we cut to fewer games, theoretically it's possible that teams would play or players would play a higher percentage of those games, but I guarantee you, they would be playing a lower magnitude, a, a lower raw number of games. So why is it better for a player to play 50 of 58 games than 65 of 82 games? Because that's 15 fewer times per year that you get to see Steph Curry performing out there. And so it's not obvious from a, from the totality of the product standpoint that we would necessarily have a better product for our fans. Um, by having fewer games. The injury data is interesting. Uh, we've done a ton of work on this, as you can imagine. And there's really no data uh, that would suggest that the injury rate for any individual game goes up as a function of the density of around that game, the number of games in the season, meaning we don't see a higher rate of injury late in the year as opposed to early in the year. We don't see a higher rate of injury on back-to-backs as opposed to non-back-to-backs. So really all you're talking about then is the exposure, right? Of course, every time you step on a court is an exposure. And so you could minimize those, but again, at, at what cost? And so when you think about the ecosystem of the arena business that has been built up around teams having these 41 home games as a, as a key factor of uh, revenue you know, driving for, for that business, it's, just, it's hard to construct a re- an alternative reality where across all those dimensions, competitive quality, player health, economics, fan engagement that we're better with fewer games doesn't matter doesn't mean we won't continue to revisit it and there's lots of other ways that we've looked at enlivening our regular season um, but there's no compelling case right now for why we should have fewer games
3: that's a great answer
4: I've spent enough time on it. That's fantastic. If, I the, if I didn't have the answer, I'd be in
3: a tough and spot. I, as, as a baseball fan and someone who likes looking and, and seeing how the Orioles are doing every night, like when they're not playing, it feels like there's sort of an emptiness there. And so that, I
0: think that there's that fans like that sort of rhythm of the games.
1: Yeah.
2: When
0: you started in this role, what did you consider to be the biggest challenges the NBA was facing?
4: Uh, so the, the, I'll give you the first one that I, that I worked on, which maybe wasn't the biggest challenge, but was interesting. And then I can kind of touch on a couple other big categories. But the very first thing I did on the basketball side um, was look at our game scheduling uh, approach. And obviously, optimization technology radically changes uh, all the time. But the NBA had yet to deploy really any sort of advanced computer optimization techniques to, to design our 1,230 game schedule um we believe that we we probably have the most complicated sport scheduling problem in the world uh when you factor in number of games uh arena availabilities travel of teams network uh allocation you know network windows and things like that it it, it becomes a a truly massive problem and by combinatorics the number of potential combinations of an nba schedule is something on the order of 10 to the 1200th um and just as a reference point, the estimated number of atoms in the universe is like 10 to the 80th. So we are wildly larger than the number of atoms in the universe, just in terms of the possible combinations of an MBA schedule. And so getting into that space and trying to figure out how to use technology and software to drive the outcomes we want from a scheduling perspective was really fascinating. So things like reducing back-to-backs, reducing travel, maximizing team business opportunity, um, optimizing for viewership, that, that was a, a fascinating entree into this space. If I looked holistically, though, uh, 10 years ago, I think the two biggest categories that we were focused on were the competitive structure, meaning how do you take the eight months eight months of an NBA season, right? Six months of a, a regular season, two months of a playoffs, and really maximize the, the competitive meaning and quality of play, and in large part through competitive incentives, right? So that's where things like play in tournament, and draft lottery, um, uh, playoff structure, those things came in. And then the other was... The, the actual gameplay itself um, that basketball had, you know, obviously the, the analytics revolution more fortunately for us than maybe some other sports led to types of play that fans really liked, right? Three pointers, dunks, fast pace. That was, that was all exciting. It also led to maybe some less desirable aspects, particularly around game flow. Right. So, the, the number of timeouts and stoppages, instant replays, free throws. And so uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about how the rules and, and format of the game can be optimized to create a better viewing experience. Uh, so I think those are the two biggest buckets, the competitive incentive season structure piece, and then the, the game formats and, and flow piece um, as, to, as to how we can engage fans uh, more consistently.
3: Can I, this is a, I mean, it's not off topic exactly, but it's uh related to something you mentioned about arena availability. I'm curious because the NHL has to schedule these same arenas. How does that process work with you all coordinating? Because I, I imagine it must take some like a lot of coordination.
4: Yeah. So we have uh it's a great question. We have about 177 calendar days in our regular season on which to schedule each team's 82 games, obviously 41 home, 41 road. And so what what we do and and the NHL does is, um, you know, roughly a year before a season starts, teams submit through our various portals, their arena availabilities for the following year. And so for for some teams that own their building, don't have a hockey team, don't do a lot of concert business, they might submit almost every single day for the entire six months and we can place games wherever we want for a team that maybe shares this building with a hockey team, they're only going to submit a limited number of dates because the other half of the dates, for example, are reserved for the hockey team. So, you know, in many of our, in many of our markets with NBA and NHL, the teams have sort of become accustomed to which night of the week they're going to play, right? So maybe the NBA team typically plays Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the NHL team team plays Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and that's just the standard uh, schedule. And so fans become accustomed to that. So that's the availability they'll submit. When you get to some of our busiest buildings, so the you know currently Crypto.com, formerly staple Centers, or I guess not even Crypto now. I, I don't remember the, the latest name, but MSG, American Airlines in Dallas, United Center in Chicago, where it's not just uh, um, uh, it's not just an NBA team and an NHL team. There's robust concert businesses. When you look at LA, you've got two NBA teams, plus an NHL team, plus the Grammys, which blocks off the building to, for two weeks every year, plus a robust concert business, plus Disney on ice. And so you come down to it, we might have 43 dates on which to schedule a team's 41 home games, which does not then give your software a lot of flexibility in terms of, um, in terms of finding places for those games. We're very much looking forward to when the Clippers move to the Intuit Dome uh, for the 24, 25 season and, and clear that out. But it's a really collaborative process You know, which, with the NHL. They end up releasing their schedule slightly before we do. And so once they release their schedule, any dates that the NHL had been holding in that building, but then didn't end up using, come back hopefully to be available for us. And so we have more flexibility, but it's a a very um, complicated and and mathematical challenge to, to solve every year.
3: Imagine.
0: How, if you go back to before Rufus derailed us with his good question, um, how do you guys think about um, with the changes that you've made in the time you've been there and what do you consider to be now the main problems? I mean, like ultimately do you think you solved comp- competitive play to some degree or did you solve, you know, the other things that you were doing? And now what are you focused on?
4: Yeah. So um, I think, I think we've made tremendous progress on the competitive incentives piece through the two changes I mentioned. So the draft lottery change came first and that was really about eliminating the so-called race to the bottom. Under our old draft lottery system, the team with the worst record was allocated 25% odds uh, and the lottery was guaranteed a top four pick. And then it sort of scaled down exponentially from there. We changed the system so that the worst three teams all now share 14% odds. And by virtue of determining four picks by, by lottery the guaranteed spot that a team uh, can can attain based on its finishes is, is now lower, and so we've actually seen a much different um, end of year approach. If if nothing else in perception, but but hopefully in reality as well, that you're not seeing you know teams at the bottom of the standings out compete each other for losses, right? So we had a few teams near the bottom of the standings this year. There wasn't that incremental incentive to go chase losses to get incremental odds because there were no incremental odds to be gained. And so just from a competitive integrity standpoint, that was really important. And then it ended up pairing really nicely with the subsequent change we made around the play-in tournament, which brought more teams into the fold for the playoffs, created tiers of the standings. So now only the top six teams are guaranteed a playoff spot, whereas it had been all eight, of course. And now you bring in seven, eight, nine, ten 10 to this play-in tournament. We had 25 or 26 teams in contention late in the year, both of the last two years, which were all-time records, of course, by virtue of that change. And when you take a change that brings more teams into contention and then a change from prior years that disincentivizes the team to race to the bottom. Well, you've created a much more robust middle class of teams who say, you know what? There's actually reason to compete through this season because I'm not gaining anything by going down. And the thing I can gain by going up is actually making the playoffs through the play in. So we've seen what we think is, is a pretty great result. And, you know, our regular season viewership, particularly at the end of the year, the last couple of years has, has supported um, that narrative. So we're, we're pretty pleased with that. I think um, if I look forward, one obvious challenge that, that we currently face is around the so-called load management issue, um, you know, star player availability. So we touched on this a little bit with the number of games, but unfortunately our, our, you know, all NBA caliber players, roughly speaking, the top 25 players in the league, in a typical season these days, they miss anywhere on the order of 25% of regular season games on average. So that's about, you know, 20, 21 games. That's not every player missing those games. Obviously, um, uh, some players are, you know, missing a whole season, others um, missing a, a limited number of games. But obviously, we are such a star driven league, it would be much more beneficial for us to have those stars on the on the court for more for more games. Um, the reality is most of that is still due to legitimate injury, right? Somewhere between 80 and 90% of those absences, depending on how you want to categorize it are are true injuries that we'd not be looking for our players to play through. And then there's a whole category of things like load management, injury management, soreness, rest, um, things that maybe are newer in the NBA world, but are preventing fans from seeing players uh, on, a, on a consistent basis. And so we've tried to tackle that in a few different ways. We just put into our new CBA um, a, a games played threshold for players to be recognized with end of year awards and recognition. So starting this coming season, a player must play 65 games in order to be named MVP or all NBA. Um, we believe that'll have some impact, you know, on the margins for players who, who may otherwise have taken some games off. Um, you know, we we just put into our CBA and we'll be launching, uh, you know, formally in the next few days here, our, our, in-season tournament, which will try to drive some more meaning in an early part of the regular season. Um, but there's probably more to be done there. And, and I, and probably on the injury side and less so on the, um, you know, on the, the rest and load management side. And so we think as, as artificial intelligence advances, and we can start to use our pose tracking data, which we're going to have starting next year, thanks to Hawkeye, um, you know, putting biomechanical models against these things. If we can do more on the injury prediction and prevention front, that would lead to more star player availability, which would would ultimately improve the product. So, I think that's that's one of the big things, you know, that that we'll probably focus on in the coming years. And then, really, the rest of it is 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 maybe protecting the game where it is right so joe dumars uh joined the nba a year ago as our head of basketball operations and you know one of his big focus areas is um uh keeping the game clean he would say right that there's a number of ways for players and teams to i won't say exploit loopholes but maybe um you know take actions on the court that are not exactly in line with what we want from an aesthetic or competitive integrity perspective, but very well within the rules. And so, you know, things like the non-basketball moves, which had gotten out of hand a couple of years ago where players were jumping, you know, shooters were jumping sideways into airborne defenders to draw defensive fouls because the interpretation on the books was if the defender is in an illegal position, it doesn't matter who initiates the contact. It's a defensive foul if there's contact. And so the offensive player therefore had the incentive to do wild, non-basketball, abrupt, overt motions just to generate that contact. We took that out of the game. We said, if if the offensive player uh, makes a move that is abrupt, overt, non-basketball in nature, that essentially trumps the defender's illegal position. And that's no longer going to be a defensive foul. So we saw the game clean up there. Last year, we put in a new rule called the transition take foul rule. Because what we saw was, time a team had a fast break, the defense was just grabbing them in the open court because that's a side out foul. There's no free throw shot if they're not in the bonus. And it turns out from an expected points per possession, you're a hell of a lot better off playing defense on a side out inbounds than you are trying to defend a fast break where you know the expected points can be upwards of 1.3 or 1.4 depending on the situation. And so we put in a rule that said, we're not going to allow that. That will be a Uh, essentially a a penalty of a technical foul, one free throw and possession. And we saw those types of fouls decrease by 85% um, one year to the next, just by putting that rule in. So I think we're constantly going to be playing a little bit of cat and mouse uh, with teams and players as they find these types of things where they can gain these really small edges, you know, through the rules, through expected points, through analytics. And we will probably be forced to change more things uh, as we see those evolve. But I think right now, you know, based
0: on some of those changes, the game's in a pretty good place. All right, Rufus, you get one last question and we're going to get Evan out of here. Which oh, one man. do you want to ask? Okay, I want to ask. So
3: in baseball, I think analytics has widely made the game less watchable. You know, strikeouts, walks, home runs, like not, balls not being put in play, long at bats. Like that's not as exciting for, from a fan's perspective. I like watching stolen bases, hit and runs, bunts. Um, do you think that there's been, do you think analytics has made baske, basketball a more or less watchable sport?
4: In aggregate, much, much, much more. Um, but in some certain areas, it's been a problem. And so I, I just you know, shared with the transition take foul, that was an obvious one where that is an ugly play. It is not basketball. No one wants to see it, but it was analytically correct, right? To take a foul and transition and not give up the fast break. We had to clean that up. Um, the, uh, hack-a-shack, the intentional fouling that was prevalent many years ago. Any shooter who shoots less than 50%, you're probably better off fouling that player in the half court, putting them on the line, than trying to play defense. That was ugly. We came up with a um, middle of the middle of roads or sort of you know um, uh, compromise solution there to eradicate it uh, in the last two minutes of each quarter when it was most prevalently used, but we left it the rest of the, the time if you wanted to use that as a strategy. So those are some like nuanced targeted areas where it probably hasn't helped. But in aggregate, what analytics has led to is a lot of three-point shooting, a lot of fast-paced action, a lot of plays around the basket. And the thing that it's gotten rid of is a lot of sort of slow it down, back to the basket, mid-range, face-up shooting. Generally speaking, that's not a universal statement, but generally speaking, our fans prefer what we currently have to what we used to have. And so that's a good thing. Um, This past season was actually the first year, I believe, in 15 years where the number of three-pointers shot in the league went down year-over-year so it's possible we've reached a bit of a um a peak in in three-point shooting or at least a a plateau and that we're now going to see a little more um consistency year-to-year in terms of the number of threes the number of shots in the paint the number of shots in mid-range and and, you know maybe this is a a good place for us to land because there still is a a robust mid-range game just not you know what it once was um but that was a criticism for a long time that the game was going to become all threes and dunks that has not come to fruition uh, so again, generally speaking, I think analytics has led to some really exciting stuff in basketball, and now you're going to start to see kind of these things around the margins that we're just going to have to keep an eye on and be able to react quickly when we see that something is taking away from the quality of play or the enjoyment of fans, uh, and I have no doubt that it will happen, um, but it's, you know, it's always hard to predict what the next innovation will be.
2: Awesome. Maybe, the game's, maybe, maybe the game's starting on time?
4: What, the games do start on time.
2: Okay. Just- you just don't know exactly
0: what the time is, right? Like yeah. the time is always like a weird seven thirty-eight. They always kind of thought exactly
4: when they were scheduled to start. It just might not be the time that was listed on a ticket.
0: <laughs> I see. All right, Evan, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. We'll we'll have you back after your big announcement next Saturday. To sort of this Saturday to see kind of some of the, the impetus behind what's what's going to be a pretty interesting thing in the NBA. So that right? was so thank Evan you Wash for us. EVP appreciate of, the time, guys. Um, stuff in the NBA. Uh, that's really good moniker stuff. Uh, Rufus, what did you have in the John Deere, or what are you looking forward to rooting for in the John Deere? I'm going to be just rooting for Rose Zhang all weekend. What are you going to be rooting for in the John Deere Classic? Let's
3: see. I think guys, outright guys, I liked um, Sepp Straka and Matthew Neesmith. Straka was in the range of 55 to 60 to 1. That's the price we got uh knee smith uh, around 101 those are those are good um straka has not teed off yet Nee smith looks like he's three under through 16 which
2: you know it's an easy course but lead the leads at eight under were you big on the? are you big on this ludwig guy i'm you know
3: i'm actually fading ludwig this week on tournament matchups
2: I have like shank against him and somebody else. Got it. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's very good. Of course. Um, it seems like, like a lot of people are into him. Yeah. What are you, uh, what are you looking forward to most this week slash?
0: I mean, I guess the, is the more golf with Tom or. Uh,
3: no, Tom's back in Portland. I'm kind of, I'm up here just with my parents it's nice. I'm having, I'm getting like a real delicious home cooked meal every day. I do the dishes. I'm, I'm kind of just living pretty slow. I haven't played much golf. I've been, I've been kind of having some monk-like focus on work. I'm going to the gym every day. I actually ran up a mountain yesterday. Wow. That was uh, yeah. I was like, I want to do a good sort of leg workout and aerobic. And it was like, it, it kicked my ass, but did that and then went and lifted so i'm i'm and and i got this cold plunge that i ordered and so i've been filling that up and, and cold plunging like most days for five minutes or so ice bath
0: nice um have you heard about this whole chuck and roxy um podcast no like tell me about these it these fans of fans of the tony kornheiser podcast created their own podcast Sort of being meta about Tony's people, and I just recently did the podcast. They launched it on July fourth, my episode. But I bet they'd love to have you on because you are a mentioned quite a bit on Tony's podcast, and they would love to. to uh, Would you Would you do that? Should I Should I see if sure, have sure? You on? But I I don't. I'm not royalty like you are, Jeff. You you. I mean, I was like I'm, explaining. I'm a
3: curiosity. I'm a curiosity on the Tony Kornheiser.
0: Show. Whenever I explain to people like your role in golf betting in, in the world, they're always like in awe.
3: Like, That's cause it's I don't not know if you remember that they live in or understand really. So
0: I don't know if you remember like our last Vegas trip, but one of the people on the Vegas trip, I guess was a listener to our podcast. Oh, by the way, shout out to the painter of my house, the painter of my house, like the house that I'm renovating is one of the seven. And he's, you know, um, Yeah, he's just shout out to him, like as a as as excitement about about having him paint our house.
3: Is that why you hired him?
2: No, found out about that later. I had no idea. Yeah, we'll give an official shout out to him. Anyways, uh,
0: you you don't even say his name. Well i don't want to dox him i okay. mean maybe he doesn't want maybe does he doesn't want his uh maybe he doesn't want his name all over this place i'll find yes, out if want okay everybody knowing this.
3: how bad taste how bad his taste in podcasts is uh
0: maybe i'll find out if it's okay to give him a real shout out and maybe next week we'll give him a real shout out and maybe that'll make him paint give us like paint one two houses for the cost of one or something so the second house we get is free um yeah okay uh Thanks all for listening. Rufus, you got to go back to your monk-like being, and we'll talk to you guys all again next week. We have a good run of guests coming up starting this week. And so um, I'm excited for the future of Bet the Process as we roll into the NFL season. Me too rankings,
1: clutching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven media coverage, the sports gambling is pathetic The bottom line is watered down, it seems like they don't get it. Puppet teaser to the end just running off a letter None of it's organic, it all sounds synthetic. That's why I fuck with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus The no locks for the year, they just tell you what their truth is Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner, give the information turning losing betters into winners. Yeah um, huh, reppin' Rutgers, Jeff Ma, Rufus Peabody, crunchin' all the numbers, Massey Peabody rankings, will, will, will liquor for the edge, analytically driven, crunching all the numbers.